This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And we're here live every Thursday morning from 8 to 10 Eastern. And then we're replayed during the week and available on our app. Mm-hmm. Great. And I want to give people our phone number, which is 1-844-WARDEN, 844-942-7866. Our email is businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And our Twitter is at BizRadio132. Yes, and if you want to follow along, we also have our, our Wharton Social Impact Twitter handle, at Wharton Social, where we'll be tweeting out updates and sharing things. We also will be sharing some content about our serious shows on our shiny new website. So we have to pause and give a shout-out to Nisa, our communications Yay, manager, who was just... You know, finish this awesome relaunch of of our Boy, website. It's a lot of work. Telling our story, putting our research out there, um, making it easier for students to understand how to get involved, um, easier to you know find what we're putting out. So it's very exciting. If you've got a minute and you are not behind the wheel, uh, check Definitely out check out the new the <laughs> Social Impact website. So let me give you a rundown of of the guests that we have, so that you're um, able to think about when you might be able to join us and stay with us. Our first guest was James Anderson, who's the head of government innovation programs at Bloomberg Philanthropies. Um, and this is um, a, you know, a kind of um, area of great interest for us. We, we do spend a lot of time thinking about urban issues and how cities can learn from each other. And James will be great for that. Then at 8.30, we'll have Vladka Lakina, who's the CEO and founder of ClassTag. She was an experienced tech executive and management consultant and worked at Fortune 500 tech companies and BCG before starting ClassTag. She's also an alum. She holds an MBA from uh, from Wharton. Mm-hmm. And then we'll be at uh, the hour, 9 o'clock, we'll have Chris Libri, who's the head of Global Impact and Giving at eBay. In this role, he leads a global team that oversees and creates programs and initiatives like Retail Revival and eBay for Charity. He also oversees the work of the eBay Foundation. And then at 9.30, we have our open segments, a great time for us to recap what our guests, what we've learned from our guests, talk about some of the, the sort of current events and issues, and, and also have, um, have folks call in, because I know sometimes when, and I find myself doing this when I'm not hosting and just listening to the show and listening to Sandy and Nick, whatever, is you're kind of engrossed in the conversation, and you don't want to, you don't really have a specific question, but it might come later. Mm-hmm. So this is a good time for you to follow up and, and think about questions you might have. Yeah, or, or guests you'd be interested in having, topics you'd be interested in hearing more about. Colin, we'd love to talk to you. Exactly, um, but yeah, it's a great show. I'm very, I'm particularly curious to hear about eBay's retail revival program mm-hmm. because to hear a big online platform have a focus on retail revival, pretty we'll curious. See. We'll so see stay with is. us. We'll tell you more about what that is. So, with that and no further ado, we're going to welcome James Anderson to the show. James, welcome. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Excellent. We're delighted to do that. We're we're big fans of, of a lot of the things that Bloomberg is doing, and so we're we're delighted to have a chance to share that with, with our guests, because I don't think a lot of people 
um, know about some of the, the the deep and important work that you guys are doing with urban innovation, mm-hmm. uh, understanding cities. It makes sense given you know Michael Bloomberg's history mm-hmm. and his interest in New York and and other places as well. But it's really great to see that being instantiated in the work that he's he's supporting in various ways. So, so tell us a little bit about the government innovation programs. And and I think this what's especially interesting about this is, you know, I think if you ask just random people on the street, government and innovation are not two things that they, they think <laughs> about together. They think about slow and stodgy and bureaucratic, et cetera. And, and you're doing work that's going to change their perception. So tell yeah. us a little bit about it. Yeah, um, it's awesome to be here. So we, um, so as you said, this is a um, an area of great passion for my boss, Mike Bloomberg, and um, uh, you know the uh, foundation has now become, I think, the most um, expansive funder of public sector innovation out there. Mm-hmm. It very much comes from Mike's belief that um, government has a leading role to play in generating you know, big solutions to the challenges that we face and that there's incredible power in getting cities to share ideas with one another. Uh, He often reflects that, you know, when he was in City Hall, so many of the best ideas that he got credit for, whether it was uh, closing down Times Square, uh, bus rapid transit, bike share, those were all ideas that he'd borrowed from other cities. And so that very basic notion that cities should be in the business of sharing and learning from one another is really central to our work. We started the programs uh, about seven and a half, eight years ago. Uh, We started primarily with some domestic investments um, in innovation, helping build the capacity within local governments to test new ideas, to determine whether they work, to discard those that are not working, and scale up those that are. Today, our footprint is much more global. We're working Mm. in around 250 cities across a number of different continents. The work is um, focused on helping mayors be bold and drive uh, ambitious agendas in their cities and then building the skills and mindsets uh, on their staffs necessary to uh, fulfill those aspirations. Very cool. And we were actually lucky enough to be a part of that innovative ecosystem. So you were five five years ago now. (laughs) I know it seems like ages ago, but five years ago, uh, we won a million dollars from the Bloomberg. Yes, you did. Well, uh, we, the city of Philadelphia. Yeah, sorry. We, we, the Wharton Social Impact, in collaboration with the city of Philadelphia and a a local accelerator, um, did a fabulous and fascinating project where we looked at how to attract entrepreneurs, to go back to what Cheryl said, you know, entrepreneurs are into fast, you know, sleek, sexy, yep, innovative, yep. high tech to government issues, to urban, you know, urban problems sort of, you know, anchored at the city of Philadelphia here. And it was such a neat project. We learned a ton. I don't think a week goes by that we don't talk about that project in some capacity. And it never would have happened without the capital from from Bloomberg. And it never would have happened had that prize not been available for us to seek funding. So it really did, I think, want a number of cool projects if we're just one example. Yep. Well, and and I'll maybe talk a minute about that particular program. The the Mayor's Challenge, it's it's a great example. It's an idea we completely borrowed from an NGO in the UK called Nesta. You probably know about them. They're an innovation foundation over there. And when I first came up to the foundation, Mike sent me on a learning journey and I went over to London and I met these guys and they were doing this incredibly interesting innovation competition with local council 
councils in the UK. They don't really have a mayoral model over there so much. And, and, and we looked at it and we said, wow, you know, we know back home cities are dying to to try big new ideas, but you know they don't have the extra cash, and it's really difficult to test new ideas with public dollars. Mm-hmm. And so we took the idea, we brought it home, we Bloombergized it, <laughs> and um, and you guys were one of the five winners of our initial mayor's challenge. That program today has traveled around the world. We we next took it to Europe. Uh, we did a version of it with Prime Minister Modi in India around smart cities, then to Latin America, and this year we brought it back to the United States. I think Mike really believes that in the current sort of environment, uh, the need to double down on U.S. cities and provide a lot of resources and support is paramount. And that program has really grown and evolved from, you know, um, a competition where we didn't provide a lot of support during the idea generation phase to an all hand, to a real skills building program that aims to take civil servants through an innovation journey really focused on building core skills. How do you prototype? How do you define a problem? How do you do open innovation and consult with citizens and others such that by the time they've actually put their idea forward, they know so much more about how to do that work for the next time around or in their you know, daily work back home. I'm really proud of where that program's gone, and um, and it'll be fun. We'll be announcing the newest winners in Detroit in a couple of months. Oh, interesting, interesting. Let us know if we can help them out, because <laughs> it was such a joy to be a part of it ourselves. <laughs> cool, I will. So what do you think the... All of this is great to hear that there's there's appetite from the cities and from the uh, the, the public servants and people working in government. What's the biggest impediment to um, having more of this innovation and and bold thinking and bold ideas actually happening? You know, I think um, I think there's just a big disconnect between uh, the ambition and the skills and the existing culture, right? So. Uh, you know, people come into local government because they want to serve their city and they want to make their cities better. And uh, a couple years go by and the bureaucracy can run the best of us down. And, um, and, and so, you know, part of what we think we're in the business of doing is reconnecting people uh, with that ambition that brought them into government in the first place. And more importantly, giving them the tools and the resources and the learning opportunities that they need to actually realize those ambitions in their daily work. So let me get specific for you. That'd be great. Uh, data is is one of the most incredible assets that is available in our cities today. And I can't think of a mayor that doesn't say on the stump in their daily work, yes, we use data and we want to get better at using data. But how do you do it? And what does good look like? How do you actually bring data into the daily work of civil servants who who weren't trained up on using data, who might not know how to use an Excel spreadsheet, who might not understand the difference between inputs, outputs, outcomes, and, and how you track those things over time. So we have a really bold program called What Works Cities that is focused on building those skills 
creating those mindsets and literally going into city halls. We're now working in 100 city halls around the country, building awareness, deepening the skills, training the bench, getting core groups of people within those city halls, all speaking the same language around how you use data, how you set goals, how you track the data, how you have those routine conversations to understand whether you're on track or off, and actually using that data to drive a decision-making within their city halls. All of that is like not knowledge that most of our civil servants came into the jobs with, right. you know, when they started. And so, and there's really nobody out there who's in the business of like upskilling them. No local government has tons of cash to go out and train up all their civil servants on this stuff. Federal governments and state governments require that cities track data, but they rarely provide any supports or resources to help them learn how to use it. And it's a big and- difference between collecting data and Having data, knowing knowing what to do with it, knowing how that leads to actions, right? So can you give us an example of, of a kind of um, a case where somebody started collecting data and it became very useful for improving services, making those po- positive outcomes happen? You know, a great example that always comes to mind is the work that we did with the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, and um, uh, the prior mayor came into office and said, gosh, you know, um, I feel like I'm flying blind. I, I, I don't I don't have any data. And we sent the teams in and the teams first said, you actually have a lot of data. Right. It's just in it's in your file folders, yep. in <laughs> your cabinets. We need to help you organize it and understand what assets you have. That was the first step. The next step was this mayor had a four million dollar budget deficit and was looking at needing was looking at needing to terminate a hundred civil servants to close the gap. We started looking at different, um, we started helping him do different analyses around programs that the city was funding. And they zeroed in on um, a gap between the number of slots in their senior centers and their after school programs and the utilization rates. And the data and the conversations around the data helped them figure out how to serve the same number of people, but close a couple of the shops, save the money, close the gap, avoid the layoffs, and move through that really rough period. Um, With data, they actually already had in their drawers they just weren't using in their daily decision making. So I think that's a really great example. Another good example is uh, Seattle and homelessness. Uh, The Seattle, um, as folks know, is, is one of those cities that's experienced extraordinary success. Rents are going through the roof. Yep. Their Gini coefficient looks something like uh, uh, looks a little bit similar to the ones you see in Sao Paulo. Um, uh, they've got a, a rising level of homelessness, and they're spending more and more money on homeless service programs. The mayor says to us, "Gosh, I don't know that we're paying. I don't know that we're getting more value out of the dollars that we're putting into these services." The team goes in. They look at all the contracts. They realize that for the most part, they're measuring inputs. They're measuring yeah. activities, not outcomes. Are we engaging people on the street? Are we helping them get showers? Are we helping them get a single night's sleep? Those are measuring inputs. Are we moving people off of the streets? Are we moving people into a better, more sustainable place? Those are outcomes that we actually really care about. And so we did a lot of work with with the city and with its homeless service providers over the course of two years to socialize a completely different way of thinking about data and using data to drive outcomes. So those are two examples of how the, the ambition is there, the data is there, but, but it's really teaching and coaching up on the skills and strategies and routines that you need to put that data into, into use 
and to focus it so that it's driving more value for your residents. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. We're talking to James Anderson, who's the head of government innovation programs at Bloomberg Philanthropies, and learning about how um, data and innovation and a drive to really uh, understand the outcomes of work that you're doing is, is sort of fostering innovation in cities throughout the globe, not just in the U.S. Yeah, and James, it sounds... Gosh, just crazy cool to have a SWAT team of these Bloomberg experts come in, help these cities. But what I'm equally intrigued by is the upscaling you're talking about. How do you help, you know, individuals who are working at their local governments develop skills or catch up? Cheryl and I were actually just joking yesterday. We have a a high school intern who's working with us. He whipped, he, we gave him an Excel document. He turned it into this, like, Google smart form online. And I was like, I'm going to be sending this kid my resume in 10 years. Like, technology is evolving so quickly. Yeah. And it's easy to imagine how anyone in any role can't keep up. So I love that you're pushing back into these employees who got into their city governments to serve people but are 15 years out from formal education and, yep, you know, yep. maybe not up with the current technologies. So, James, tell us what that looks like. You know, do you build a curriculum? What do you do and how do you identify what training these folks need? Um, so it looks a little bit different across our portfolio, but let me give you a, a really great example of that. Uh, we were talking a moment before about the Mayor's Challenge competition. Philadelphia was one of the five winners from our initial competition a few years ago. This year we're running uh, an, a, a ref, an enhanced version of that program, and we currently are working with 35 finalists across the country. These are small towns like Georgetown, Texas, big cities like Los Angeles, California, and everything in between. They've all generated an idea, and they're in the sort of strengthen and stretching, stretching and strengthening phase of the competition. And this year, what we've decided is that, um, you know, prototyping is a concept you all are probably very familiar with. Uh, there's almost no business today that introduces a new product or a new service that they haven't prototyped right. um, as part of product development. But in local government and in government writ large, most new services and most new products are still developed by government experts around a conference room table. And the whole idea of talking with end users, um, introducing minimum viable products and low fidelity models of your idea really hits up against this this fear that we have in government around not having all the answers, Mm -hmm. around introducing something publicly that might not work. Absolutely. Those those are hard learned lessons for local leaders and government officials uh, generally. Yeah, and I I really do want to follow up on that point because I was exactly thinking about that as you were talking because um, failure and sort of saying we're going to try something and it may not work is a hard thing to say to the public. And I think the public is often not willing to take that. They're like, I'm paying you to succeed, not to try something and fail. Mm-hmm. And then then that destroys all the innovation, right? Yes. So if there's one thing our listeners, I guess, can, can consider. It's, you know, do you want your, your government operating a little bit more like a you know, fast-moving company these days where they are trying things and not getting great feedback, then pivoting and tweaking, but innovating. Right. Um, or playing it super safe and things move slowly. So you can't have it all. 
No, but I, but I, but I think there's. I, I, I'm not sure those two extremes are the are the right ones either. I, I think that nobody is arguing that local governments should behave like uh, a startup um, and and take on the level of risk that a, a venture capital uh, firm is willing to take on. I think prototyping is actually an incredibly powerful tool that allows local governments to put forward bold, provocative new ideas and to de-risk them by testing them small, learning quickly, and adapting uh, and, 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 and going through that cycle again. So we have 35 cities right now in this program that are all conducting public prototypes over the course of the summer. They, and we're using that as an opportunity for them to really challenge their own hypotheses and assumptions that they've baked into creating their ideas. So, you know, um, in Los Angeles, um, the mayor is, uh, has an incredibly interesting idea, which is, wow, we have a massive homelessness problem. We have a massive affordable housing gap. We don't have uh, communities that are, um, a lot of communities don't want to have density built in their neighborhoods. You know, the NIMBY sort of factor exists in every city everywhere. Um, And they've zeroed in on a really interesting asset that they have in Los Angeles, which is 500,000 single family properties are currently zoned to also have mother-in-law apartments in the backyard. The process for getting a mother-in-law apartment built in your backyard is incredibly cumbersome. So the first thing the innovation group did there was they streamlined that process. They went to Sacramento. They passed some legislation that made it easier for folks in the city to apply for and 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 build a, a single uh, uh, what's it called a, a mother-in-law. An, ADU, accessory dwelling unit in their backyard. And for our listeners who aren't familiar, these are 400 square foot ish, almost almost like the size of a traditional garage. That's sort of a studio. They can be as small as I think 400 square feet. I'm not positive about how small, but they can actually be as big as 1,200 or 1,300 square feet. We have listeners who are in cities going, I'll do Exactly. That's a mansion. For all of our our folks in New York, I mean, that's like a a palace. Yeah. You know, they can actually be quite big is the point. And and what the innovation that they're looking at is can we actually match homeless people um, into these units and create an incentive structure um, that encourages homeowners to allow homeless people to live in their ADUs for a period of time with a lot of supports as a way to do service for the city of Los Angeles and for neighbors who are less fortunate. And, 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 and they've got a lot of assumptions and ideas that went into how they created that idea. And so they've been out there in the community kicking the tires, introducing, you know, prototypes of that and testing them and learning a lot about how this idea could actually work. And so through that process, they're removing risk, they're reducing risk, and they're creating something that once introduced is much more likely to succeed. And so I think that's like you know, we're not asking the public sector to take crazy risks with public dollars. We're asking the public sector to dream big and to recognize its right and proper role in driving innovation that improves lives and that improves our communities. And we know that there are tools and techniques that they can use to reduce the risk, to understand what's working, and test small before you fail big. And that's really the idea that we're driving here. 
And I would imagine that, you know, you, you talked about Seattle, you talked about Los Angeles, other places, that, that places that have high rent, uh, have high levels of homelessness. So what one city learns about how to maybe provide these small housing could be adapted by other cities as well, so that you've got innovation, I think, I assume, being driven across cities and not just within a city. Yeah, Cheryl and I obviously spent too much time doing this together because that was <laughs> going to be my next question. How are you sharing, James, what is being learned and, you know, the metrics supporting this with other cities? So as, you know, L.A. does all of these focus groups and tests and figures out the zoning, how are those best practices or Worst practices being, you know, or learnings, or yes. learnings yeah, yeah, being shared with other cities. Uh, it's it's a mission that we take super seriously because we really, I, I mean, I guess this goes back again to sort of Mike Bloomberg's original inspiration, which is that we want to support cities in sharing knowledge, failure, and lessons learned, and also their best ideas. Um, the Providence idea that won the Mayor's Challenge actually took the grand prize when it, Philadelphia was one of the five winners is an awesome don't, idea. There. Don't remind <laughs> us. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's one of those, it's, it's great. Everybody's a winner in that competition. Yes, yep. um, and Providence won for a really beautiful idea, which takes this the mayor at the time grew up in public housing, was very focused on the word gap. Poor kids, some research says, have heard uh, up to 30 million fewer words than their middle and upper income peers by the time they get to kindergarten. This has a really debilitating effect on brain development and puts them at risk in terms of uh, future school attainment. Yeah, and for and, our listeners who aren't familiar, I, we want to make sure we unpack the jargon. This is simply the the volume of unique words a child has heard. So are you in an exactly. environment where you just hear, you know, the same couple hundred words repeated or are you in an environment where you're being read stories about different things or, you know, hearing just a, a larger volume, just the count of unique words in, in really the language. Yeah. Yeah. It really matters, as does the back and forth between a caregiver and a child. Mm, so it's actually the conversational turns is what they're called, oh. actually generate the greatest amount of sort of um, synapse or neuron development, whatever the right Whoa. lingo is there. So it's, and it's a call and response. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Interesting. And so, and so they, they came up with a technology that tracks the number of words that a child hears and the number of conversational turns. Um, they worked with an educational foundation in Boulder, Colorado, Lena, the Lena foundation that developed this technology and they married that with coaching. Um, where somebody shows parents the data, here's how many words your child has heard compared with where they should be, and then gives them really basic tips on how to use more words with their kids. It has produced incredible impact. We just got an impact evaluation back from Brown University. The program really works. Wow. And what's so exciting about it is that tons of cities around the country have gone to Providence to learn about Providence Talks. There are versions of that program happening in numerous cities around the country. And now with the impact evaluation, the interest is growing exponentially. And so we really look at it as part of our mission and our business to not only help those cities that are interested in connecting, make those connections, but we will probably also help a number of cities um, expand the evidence base around this program because we know that it worked in Providence. Let's see if it can work in five other communities around the country and produce similarly powerful results. So let me um, just ask, who, who funds the impact assessment? 
Uh, I think in that case we did. Oh, I think they won the five million dollar grand prize. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that part of our grant money went for that. They may have also had some other foundation partners locally uh, that supported that evaluation. I can't really recall yeah. the details yeah. on that. but that's because that's a, always an interesting question because we, we, you know, we're coming back, you know, full circle back to data and getting the right data and and how to understand it and use it and to know what to collect. And I think it's often hard for smaller groups to to understand how they're going to measure the results. And so having funding that helps to support that is is really important. And then it can really justify the expansion across multiple cities like you talked about. Yeah. And James, I have to ask, as a parent, and, and one of our our goals on the show is making sure that as people listen, they're able to leave with tangible you know, <laughs> things that they can go do. What do the coaches tell people about how to increase the word count their kids here? You know, one of the one of the most really interesting things that I learned when I um, got to know the program a little bit better is, you know, um, families that are living in poverty don't only live in financial poverty; they live they experience time poverty. Mm-hmm. Parents are working multiple jobs and they're stressed as all get out. And sometimes what that results in is 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 sort of um, I think it's called command language. So oh. you you might say like I have twin boys, um, Amos Henry, don't hit each other. Period. Five words, whatever that was. So a huge part of the coaching is sort of explaining the value behind the directive. Mm-hmm. And so Amos Henry, don't hit each other. When we hit each other. It's a sign of disrespect, and you love each other and your brothers, and we always want to show each other respect. And so, you know, just always remembering that when you give an, a directive to augment it with the value behind the directive as just a, a, a tip that uh, they often give through this program and that really works wonders. I will say that simply showing parents the data in and of itself has a pretty galvanizing effect because, you know, every parent believes they're doing the best they can do for their kids. And, and when you really get that data and you see that, wow, I'm, I'm lagging and there's more that I need to be doing to make sure my kid has an equal chance, that in and of itself, you know, they, they immediately start using more words yeah. because you, you just don't know until you see the data. You know, you, you, that maximum you can't manage what you aren't measuring is really true, even in the way that we interact with our own kids. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. And they've just done such a thoughtful job with the program. They've iterated it. They found lower cost delivery models. Um, and so I'm, I have a lot of high hopes for that. I think that program has already informed um, the sort of way that the early childhood community is thinking about the role of parents and how we support parents to do their first and most basic job with their kids. And um, and then I think it will also just spread as a sort of program um, um, as well. So so excited about that. I'll mention one other great example of, of the sort of spreading that I just learned about. We have this um, we're doing some work in Chattanooga. Uh, the mayor there is very focused on the fact that his police force is not as diverse as the community that it serves. And, and so that's a we, problem in a lot of places. It, exactly right. It's a problem in a lot of places. And so we started working with the Chattanooga Police Department and the mayor's office on testing different messages and bringing behavioral insights into the marketing and outreach materials that they're using to reach out to um, communities of color and other and women and others that they want to have join the police force. 
Um, we have the Behavioral Insights team, which is one of our incredible partners that uses nudges. And oh, this is um, the group out of London. They started in London, yeah. exactly. We we help them open their North American office, and they're doing work with cities all over the country. And um, and they worked with Chattanooga to develop messages and different ways of communicating with potential applicants that have proven incredibly effective in bringing more diverse applicants um, to into the application process. And then we have 10 other cities in our network that were also focused on that issue. And they have self-formed a group where they're all testing different messages. Oh, nice. They're sharing the, the knowledge between themselves. They're learning together. They're driving faster. And this is spreading like crazy because that desire to learn from each other is so strong. They love it. You know, there's, there's kind of like nothing we can say to the cities that is stronger than what they hear from each other. And so we really try to make those connections and allow them to use us as a platform to learn together. Well, and how great to hear something that about a, a, an approach that's succeeding and is sort of fairly easy to implement, et cetera. It's so, cheap and easy. Yeah, cheap and easy. <laughs> so, James, we are we're rapidly coming to the end. In about 30 seconds, tell us uh, what's the next project you're working on. Um, you know, we're, we're very, uh, we, oh boy, what's the next thing we're working <laughs> on? I, I'm, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, we're doing a lot of research right now on city networks. And, um, you know, there's a, a, an incredible amount of infrastructure in the world. Some of it is 80, 90 years old, or, yep. you know, city networks that have worked in countries around the globe. A lot of it is newer, focused on issues and innovation and capacity building. And I think um, how we support cities is going to be one of the most critical and important things to figure out moving forward. We want cities to solve any number of problems that our national governments are, are simply ignoring or, um, you know, basically ignoring to our great detriment. And how we support cities and inject more resources um, into them, I think is really going to be an important issue. And, and the networks, I think, are probably one of the most important and under-resourced assets out there. So we're, we're looking at that right now, which is very exciting. Wonderful. And that's, uh, it's great to hear. I mean, we, we live in a city where we're, you know, really proud and hopeful for what urbanization is going to, some of the problems that are they're going to be solved and addressed. And so it's great to hear all the, the work that you guys are doing it. We've been talking with James Anderson, head of the Government Innovation Programs at Bloomberg Philanthropies, and uh, keep a lookout for them and see them come into a city near you very soon. Thanks again, James. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 